Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And today, witches, we are bringing you another mini-sode, or I guess technically an extended universe episode. We were very kindly invited in May to participate in a live panel organized by Edmonton's Potter Watch as part of a project they're referring to as Project Firenze. The topic of this panel is the importance of diversity and representation in fantasy literature. I have edited the panel down a little bit for the sake of brevity, and I'm not totally sure how good the sound quality is going to be. But please go ahead and enjoy this live episode with a promise that the next episode will not be a mini-sode. Hi, I'm Emily Hoven. I'm Nina Legessa. So we're just going to start by introducing our panelists. Um, so some of them are not here, but we'll introduce, we'll introduce them nonetheless. Um, so uh, Dr. Lucinda Rasmussen is a sessional instructor at the University of, of Alberta, where she earned her PhD in 2013 and has been teaching undergraduate English and writing studies for about eight years. She has taught classes on popular culture, gender, feminism, and race. For the past five years, she has been teaching a class called Introduction to Aboriginal Literatures. When teaching this course, she asks students to think through ideas about what it might mean to decolonize the study of literature and to think about scholarship and reading practices that might foster good relationships and which are reciprocal. And uh, Roxanne Hart is a professor of English and associate dean of research at the University of Alberta, Augustana. 
She researches American women's writing and children's literature using cultural studies approaches. Her work has appeared in several journals, including Women's Writing, Jeunesse, The Lion and the Unicorn, Legacy, Critique, International Research in Children's Literature, and Mosaic, and in several edited collections, including Enterprising Youth. Hannah McGregor and Marcel Cosman are the hosts of Which Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. Hannah holds a PhD in English literature, and Marcel is a PhD candidate in the same field. When they aren't making podcasts, they both teach and research at the University of Alberta. So we're going to begin by just reading uh, the, uh, one excerpt from uh, J.K. Rowling's Magic in North America, which was published on Pottermore earlier this year. Um, and so this section is from the 14th century to the 17th century in her wizarding world. And so she writes... Though European explorers called it the New World when they first reached the continent, wizards had known about America long before muggles. Note, while every nationality has its own term for muggle, the American community uses the slang term nomad, short for no magic. Various modes of magical travel, brooms and apparition among them, not to mention visions and premonitions, meant that even far-flung wizarding communities were in, com were in contact with each other from the Middle Ages onwards. The Native American magical community and those of Europe and Africa had known about each other long before the immigration of European nomads in the 17th century. They were already aware of the many similarities between their communities. Certain families were clearly magical, and magic also appeared unexpectedly in families where hitherto there had been no known witch or wizard. The overall ratio of wizards to non-wizards seemed consistent across populations, as did the attitudes of nomads wherever they were born. In the Native American community, some witches and wizards were accepted and even lauded within their tribes, gaining reputations for healing as medicine men or outstanding hunters. However, others were stigmatized for their beliefs, often on the basis that they were possessed by malevolent spirits. The legend of the Native American skinwalker, an evil witch or wizard that can transform into an animal at will, has its basis in fact. A legend grew up around the Native American anime guy, that they had sacrificed close family members to gain their powers of transformation. In fact, the majority of animagi assumed animal forms to escape persecution or to hunt for the tribe. Such derogatory rumors often originated with nomad medicine men, who were sometimes faking magical powers themselves and fearful of exposure. The Native American wizarding community <laughs> was particularly gifted in animal and plant magic, its potions in particular being of a sophistication beyond much that was known in Europe. The most glaring difference between magic practiced by the Native Americans and the wizards of Europe was the absence of a wand. The magic wand originated in Europe. Wands held magic so as to make its effects both more precise and more powerful, although it is generally held to be a mark of the very greatest witches and wizards that they have also been to produce wandless magic of a very high quality. As the Native American anime guy and potion makers demonstrated, wandless magic can attain great complexity, but charms and transfiguration are very difficult without one. So when this was, was published, um, there was quite a bit of criticism of J.K. Rowling's representation of Indigenous people uh, on Twitter. Um, so people like Dr. Adrian Keene and Chelsea Vowell both criticized uh, J.K. Rowling for the ways in which she kind of took spiritual beliefs and practices out of their contemporary context and dropped them into her imagined wizarding world, um, so taking something real uh, like skinwalkers and positioning it as fantasy. Um, so I think we'll begin our conversation by talking about how the genre of fantasy literature uh, informs an author's responsibilities when it comes to representation. 
in imagined worlds. So um, do they have different responsibilities when they're representing people in these imagined worlds as opposed to in kind of something like historical fiction? Do you have anybody in mind who you want to answer first? Anyone. <laughs> Just because we're closest doesn't mean we should win. Do you have a, an answer off the off the bat for that? And you want to talk about the responsibility to the genre? Yeah, particularly how the, yeah, the genre of fantasy informs your responsibility towards, I guess, the politics of representation. I can talk, take a stab. I can take a stab at starting, starting the conversation. Um, because the thing, the thing, I know we were talking about literature, and I will try really hard to keep my, my answers focused on literature, but I keep thinking of the, the whole Game of Thrones representation of sexual violence debate, right, where people are talking about um, why it is that in a fantastical world, certain forms of violence get reproduced as though they are natural and innate in human interactions. So within the genre of fantasy, you have a huge amount of free play um, and you don't have to reproduce the world as it exists. And so an insistence on reproducing a sort of patriarchal world in which women are defined through availability to violence um, is, is itself a political argument. Um, and something really similar happens when somebody like Rowling attempts to incorporate a sort of global frame for her version of magic um, and reproduces these sort of hierarchies even within her fantasy world it ends up naturalizing those hierarchies and insisting that there's something innately different about, say, indigenous culture versus um, European culture that can be mapped out according to wand possession or wandlessness. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like the short answer is I think that you have a huge amount of responsibility to think about the political implications of what versions of reality you do and do not reproduce in your fantasy world. Um, but also, I just think that there's this laziness in that kind of fantasy that's like a failure of imagination, right? That's just like, oh, well, obviously, um, we can only think through a version of indigeneity within a fantasy world that is somehow less than the imperial European version. <laughs> My response to magic in North America is one of profound disappointment. <laughs> just, I feel like my kid really let me down. <laughs> okay, well, um, I've taught native literatures and children's literature for over a dozen years, and I'm currently immersed in a research project on native children's literature, so it brings together two streams of research and teaching that I've been um, working with in for a long time. So settler culture people and Anglo-Euro people can certainly write literature that includes native peoples, First Nations, North American peoples. We'll just start with that. I don't, I find borders arbitrary, but oceans not so much, so I tend to stick to, <laughs> I tend to stick to this side of the pond. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's legit. Um, so I'm not going to throw out all texts. I, there are a number of authors, and for those of you who are interested in um, representations of First Nations peoples in children's lit, there's a couple of books by Dora Seale and Beverly Slapin, um, a, the, a Broken Flute and um, Through Indian Eyes, that catalog and evaluate books about Native peoples for kids. 
um, and they don't diss anybody who's Euro, white, Western, whatever, who's been writing this stuff. Um, they do comment that Laura Ingalls Wilder should have um, been skinned by the Osage people when they had the chance. Um, <clears throat> and I don't disagree. <laughs> so uh, um, I guess you're taking your question about genre as a starting point, Rowling's first responsibility is to these living traditions and cultures. These people are not gone. They're not the druids that she was playing with wholesale in the Potter books. Um, these are people who, these are their beliefs and practices as Lucinda or as uh, Adrian says in, in some of her postings. Um, Rowling doesn't even have a right to know about the skinwalkers. This is insider information. So in terms of, of drawing on North American native cultural traditions and histories and practices, uh, you need to kind of be on the inside to do this. So to write fantasy about this stuff, you need to be, you need to be of the people. This is go going to go badly. Um, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> And so what I wanted to bring, because I don't work on ruling. I'm an Americanist. Um, I don't work on the stuff from across the pond. I have read the Potter books. I've enjoyed them. I like the films. It's all good. It's not where I spend my, my academic energies. Um, so I came here thinking I would like to just talk to you about places that you folks, with your deep interests in YA fantasy fiction, can go, if you're interested in what, a native author can do with his or her traditions and spiritual values because there's a lot of really good stuff out there and the other thing I wanted to talk about and I'm just gonna hand this to Lucinda for a while uh, <laughs> um, because I could you know hang on to it all night um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about is is how readers how we as readers as outsider readers from the looks of this room um, need to walk that fine line where we understand that, yes, that Joe here is, is writing a fantasy, but it's deeply invested in beliefs that are not seen as fictional or fantastical or even really supernatural. They are natural in a super kind of way. All right, so my next question is, um, in the Harry Potter books, uh, J.K. Rowling borrows uh, like lots of myths, legends, and sometimes historical figures, real occultists, alchemists, sometimes stories from other, uh, other nations' cultures. Um, you sort of answered uh, my question of what do you think is an appropriate amount of myth borrowing by uh, speaking to um, incorporating actual, or using actual uh, native history is uh, sort of fiction, uh, but had th I, I'm curious to know is had this indigenous uh, background story, I guess, been a part of Rowling's Harry Potter narrative, would it be, would it have been appropriate uh, to incorporate indigenous history into the Harry Potter universe? And at what point does it become dangerous territory? Um, okay, so I think I think that's a really, really interesting question, and I think if I'm understanding it correctly, what you're asking is if she had talked about um, uh, 
this mythology in the novels themselves that would have made a difference to what's happening in the history that she's writing? Is that, yes. is that the gist of the question? I mean, I'm not sure it would have made a, prof- a lot of difference, to be honest. Um, I think it's just by virtue of her, her position as, a, as an author who is outside Indigenous culture um, that that's constructing very, very sort of dangerous territory for her. Um, I think that there are ways she could go about that, but I think that your, your question would be one that depends a lot on, on her approach, right, and what she's going to do in terms of um, establishing relationships with Indigenous people as she tells and borrows from their myths. And so part of what I had as, as introductory comments to this was something along the lines of, um, you know, thinking of, of J.K. Rowling and other fantasy authors as people who are doing a particular kind of research. Um, and around that, um, I started to think of the things I've been reading on decolonization pedagogies, right, and how researchers, and I hope I'm not repeating what others have said, and I may be, um, but how researchers have this a particular, you know, non-Indigenous people who are, who are positioning themselves as speakers about Indigenous people. Um, I think they would have particular responsibilities in that. Um, and I'd like to just read three questions that I, I wrote um, in terms of, um, let me just collect my thoughts here. Um, these are from a book called Settler Identi- and Identity and Colonialism. They're, it's by Emma Battelle and Adam Barker. Um, and they're writers who are settlers, and they're talking about um, appropriation and what that is, right? And so they talk about appropriation as being, of course, territory and belongings, but that it can also be ideas and concepts. Um, and I'm just going to read a bit of a quote, for, a quote from them. It says, "Identity, Indigenous ways of knowing are complex, and they have the potential to reveal a great deal about human environmental relationships, social practices, and time and space. Um, and she speaks of, and they speak of settlers who um, perceive a value in Indigenous thought and often without intending to offend or cause harm. Um, because by virtue of this, this sort of settler indigenous dynamic, they are exerting their power as part of a dominating society to take these concepts for themselves. Um, and that these practitioners, um, they may even you know, be saying that they honor indigenous people, but in effect, they're, they're doing something really different, which I think is what um, was being said as I, I kind of came in the room, this idea that um, they're, they're borrowing, they're stealing. It, it's kind of a cultural theft, right? Um, and so, I, you know, as I was reading the internet and, and, and looking at what people were saying and in defense of J.K. Rowling, a lot of it was, well, she's actually honoring Indigenous people as she does this. But it's, it's, we, we can't get outside the idea that in this particular instance, things change a little bit, um, that by virtue of that, that sort of settler dynamic, she is doing more of an appropriation. Um, so the questions around that are, um, I think what she would need to do is, is kind of ask if she were wanting to do this kind of research in a particularly respectful way, um, she might want to be thinking of things like reciprocity and what can I do as a teller of these stories, as a borrower of these stories, what can I do not only to benefit myself and um, you know, a sort of mainstream readership, but how can I also benefit in Indigenous peoples and what can I give to them and finding ways of involving them in the process. And so it does sort of involve a, a kind of rethinking of, of how you approach stories and how you approach knowledge and, and thinking through things like um, indigenous people are, are, are keepers of oral traditions, right? But it's a settler thing. It's a, it's a colonial thing to write things down and to claim copyright and say, I write things down so I own it, right? So there's different rules and that really complicates things. So I, I'm aware that the little bits of writing in the, in the history are quite short. So she didn't have a lot of space or she didn't take a lot of space 
to do the job. But there's a lot of different peoples in North America. Um, so that, that when Bruchak is writing about this Apache girl in a post-apocalyptic America, he's putting her on her traditional grounds. He's writing her tribally. Rowling has shown no inclination to even understand the differences um, between one tribality and another. She's not being specific. It's just one big old melting pot of Indians. And that specificity needs to filter all, I mean, it's territorial, it's spiritual, it's historical, it's cultural and traditional. So Aaron Paquette, who's not here yet, but his book is great. He's Cree. So we have a Cree family merging into the multiple worlds of a fantasy. Um, one novel that I worked on a few years ago, and I'm still kind of bashing it around, is, is written by a Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael Shaben, who generally writes for adults. But he wrote one YA fantasy, and it's, it's called Summerlands. And it is one of those West Coast, it's looking at, at specific West Coast tribes, um, their involvement with settler peoples, saving the world. It's a wonderful fantasy novel um, that features... First Nations protagonists and also settler protagonists and uses the trickster figure Coyote um, in some really interesting ways. I, I highly recommend it, but I'm not completely convinced he got it right. And I don't think he got it right all the way through, but at least he tried. Um, he, he, he ticked off the boxes I would want to see him ticking off in terms of location, territory, traditions, all of those things. That's how you go about honoring First Nations peoples. First of all, you look specifically at who you're dealing with. Is it Cree? Is it Apache? Is it Abenaki? And then you have to work from there. It's a lot of work, and it's not looking like Rowling is looking to do that much work. Uh, I think there's, there's not a whole lot that I would add. I guess what I do want to add, um, when Hannah and I have talked about this previously, a couple of things that I think are probably worth repeating um, were one that uh, Rowling has lots of money and if she had wanted to, she certainly could have hired research assistants who are experts in this field and that would have... Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, in, terms of, in terms of ways to do this properly, even if she herself does not have the time or the inclination to uh, immerse herself in, um, in learning how to be an appropriate non-Indigenous writer writing, or write, being a non-Indigenous writer writing appropriately about Indigenous cultures. Um, and the other thing, um, and this one is, this is the one that really I think is probably the most disappointing because I think it's, it, ha it is what has backed her the furthest into the corner. And it's that um, the pieces that she published on Pottermore are published as having been written by her and not as having been written by fantastic uh, magical characters who could have gotten it wrong. And so what it does is it changes the authority of those pieces, right? So if, for example, so if we think about the Harry Potter series and the ways in which the characters come to realize that the history of magic, which they've all been been studying, or rather Hermione is the only one who's ever read it, has read, like, 
year after year, Hermione really goes through a lot of um, crises coming to realize that the history of magic is not a reliable source of information. It's limited. It tends to portray wizards and wizarding history in a specific light that, um, that misses a lot of other groups of people and species. And I think that if Rowling had done something similar, that would have really opened up a lot of exciting opportunities for, for doing exactly that, having these more specific um, forays into different types of indigenous magic. Um, yeah. yeah. It's actually textualized in the seventh book in the form of a, a dispute over the history of goblin-wizard relations. Yeah. There's this whole thing about how goblins and wizards have different understandings of property and how wizarding history is a deliberate misrepresentation from the perspective of goblins, a deliberate misrepresentation of the interactions between... So, it's like, she does textualize in the novels the issue of historical representation and misrepresentation, which is part of what makes these stories so disappointing because they're really stupid. Um, <clears throat> what was the other, there was one other piece I was going to add. Oh yeah, it's, her, it's the response, right? We're thinking about relationality, right? And respect. And we're thinking through the problem of um, a massive appropriative settler misstep like the one that Rowling has made. You also have another moment in which people say to you, the thing that you did was an act of representational violence. And you have the option of saying, oh, whoa, I'm sorry, I will take the stories down, I will do better, I will listen to you. Like, there are, there are also possibilities for response. Um, I think that we are all, like, we all, we live in a really complicated world and we're all going to screw up at some point, and you always have the option of when somebody says, oh, the thing that you did was hurtful to me or violent to me, then you have always the option of saying, I'm sorry, I will do better. But that's, I mean, that's not the move she made, right? Like, she had people contacting her and saying, like, these, there's, these are terrible. And her response was, um, to, was, one, to ignore people, or two, to correct people. When people asked her questions, for example, about the skinwalkers and said, you know, well, what's the relation between that and this actual real history? And she said, oh, well, in my, ver in my magical world, skinwalkers skin aren't real. They're just a misrepresentation of this thing that really exists. Just the worst possible response. Mm -hmm. So, uh, now. Nah. <laughs> so I guess kind of on that note, in terms of how Rowling kind of claims this as like her world, right? There's kind of a territorial element to that. Um, I'm curious about, I don't know, like do you think that uh, magic in North America uh, is kind of working in some ways as a tool of colonization. Like I'm thinking about um, like in 19th century Canadian literature, how you use like literature as a way of kind of building the settler colonial state. Um, like how can we see this as an extension of that? Um, and I guess like what are the kind of like real world ramifications of this very kind of poor representation of, uh, of indigenous people? I'm just going to say briefly that I think it's exactly colonization. <laughs> um, I think it's it's like like you couldn't 
you couldn't write this in a story. It's such an obvious example of colonization that people would be like, that's not very creative. <laughs> um, so like having an English author literally colonize indigenous magical traditions is so boring. Um, <laughs> but yes, it is exactly colonization. Yeah, yeah and I would add, I'd add just one piece of context that I sort of want to put into the conversation, which is um, that, uh, I mean, the problem, the, the, the way that this kind of colonizing violence works in these texts is to <laughs> render the indigenous subject fantastical rather than real and to render, render indigenous cultures fantastical rather than real. Um, and that sort of violent erasure of the realness and the contemporariness of indigenous culture is something we, we see being repeated right now in a very different form in the current debates in Canada about why indigenous people should all just leave their communities in the north and assimilate into mm. urban centers in Canada. So any claims that that's not, that the sort of violent erasure of indigenous culture is not an ongoing project in the Canadian settler state, I think we literally see, we're literally seeing it happening on you know the pages of the walrus. Yeah, I mean, I, it definitely um, seems like an act of colonialism to me as well. Um, and I guess in terms of real-world implications... Um, you know you're not amplified, right? Oh, sorry, yes. Um, in terms of real-world applications, I would say um, one of them that we could be concerned about is the effects of narratives like this on Indigenous young people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and sort of rolling making light of that opportunity to create texts where a lot of people can see themselves reflected and take pride in, in what they're seeing, right? And she's she's got a very sort of narrow, uh, she's narrowing her audience in a lot of different ways. And I know that um, uh, Marcel and Hannah, you've talked a lot about that on your podcast as well in terms of how that can play out in the books. But just in terms of um, almost presenting Indigenous people as according to that very old trope of the vanishing person. So it's, you know, in other words, they're, you know, indigenous people aren't even here, right? Okay, well, first in that, in that first segment of the, the histories, the, the one that you quoted, um, she's, uh, she styles them as like just everybody else. They're just like Europeans, right? right. There's magical families and non-magical families and blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, first of all, in terms of uh, being an act of colonization, yes, but I would look more at it as an act of crass imperialistic capitalism um, the works that I study by these authors and others um, are deeply invested in indigenous oral traditions which everyone is specific to um, the specificities of, of the peoples and tribes and locations in which the text is set so and the oral tradition is meant to teach. So in any of these texts, I mean, Rowling plays with the story within a story in many different ways and in interesting ways. Um, but these texts always have storytellers. You understand that you have storytellers within stories within storytellers, and that's how it, it keeps going because they're meant to teach. So when you have First Nations authors writing fantasy for young people, um, they are working specifically to teach. So both of these books basically... Um, have the stories embedded in them, the tribal stories, the histories, the oral tradition, how stories got told, when stories got told, why they mattered, and what they were meant to teach kids, right? 
So when you get to somebody who's not a fantasy author, like Louise Erdrich, and she has, this is the Birch, from the newest one of the Birchbark House series, there are elements of the supernatural embedded. But you also learn in those stories what these kids are meant to understand about their cultures and histories. And you get the details of the stories. You learn that certain stories are only told in the wintertime. Other stories are only told in the summertime. And there are reasons for that. And that they teach children to be in tune with their people, with the natural world. I mean, basically, these two books have the same message. We probably shouldn't destroy the planet. It's the only one we've got. Um, it's kind of a good message. I'm not getting that from rolling. <laughs> rolling secretly pro-global warming. Um, and then maybe just to just to wrap up this question, there the one probably most troubling for me that there are lots of troubling things about the about the magic of north america series but the one that i find the most disturbing is when um she writes that the and you guys had read this part that the um the tradition of skinwalkers has its basis in how is it worded again it's that it has its basis in fact yeah it has its basis in there's something that I find really deeply disturbing about a fantasy writer claiming a story that is traditional and then saying with authority, this has its basis in fact, as though we were all taking for granted that it didn't. So I don't really know how to explain the layers of what makes that really complicated and troubling and colonial, but... Um, well, you yeah, because it's you, it's within. I, I, the, sorry, I wasn't done. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you you as the white appropriating author don't get to decide what has its basis in fact and what does not. Um, but to also then put in your magical fantasy series that it actually is factual. That's anyway. That's not okay. So um. We're going to talk about uh, the next sort of passage, and it's about scourers. Uh, I'll just read it out, just for some context. So, um, the last and probably the most dangerous problem encountered by wizards newly arrived in North America were the scourers. As the wizarding community in America was small, scattered, and secretive, it had yet, it has yet, er, (laughs) it had as yet no law enforcement mechanism of its own. This left a vacuum that was filled by an unscrupulous band of wizarding mercenaries of many foreign nationalities who formed a much feared and brutal task force committed to hunting down not only the criminals, uh, but anyone who might be worth some gold. As time went on, the scourers became increasingly corrupt. Far away from the jurisdiction of their native magical governments, many indulged a love of authority and cruelty unjustified by their mission. Such scourers enjoyed bloodshed and torture, even when even went so far as trafficking their fellow wizards. The number of scourers multiplied across America in the late 17th century, and there, there is evidence that they were not above passing off innocent nomadges as wizards to collect rewards from gullible non-magic members of the community. So um, we can see that uh, J.K. Rowling shifts the focus really quickly from the arrival of white settlers to the New World's, I guess, internal conflicts that center around witches and wizards rather around white settlers and native peoples. 
Um, so it seems as though scours are lifting some of the responsibility off of colonial inquisitors uh, of, for the witch trials. Um, so do you think that magic is Rowling's easy way out for the atrocious actions and motivations of uh, behind mass violence, or do they help explain it well to a younger audience in a fantastical context? We've been talking, as we've been reading through the seventh book, about how magic is used to unpack the really complex relationships of power in European society and what the book does in terms of, like there is this this fascist reading available of Voldemort and the Death Eaters, that the sort of wizard rise over the muggles, but layered onto that is the fact that wizards themselves have also been you know, within her world, wizards themselves have also been subject to violence from muggles. And so that that's a sort of violence that is itself a response to a history of violence. It's a, a people who understand themselves to have been oppressed, turning back and responding to that oppression with another form of violence that I think plays out in ways that make sense in a European context um, because of the complex relationships between nation states in Europe and the particular kind of histories that happened there. Um, I mean, I think Rowling is really, really good at using magic as a device for working through the complexities of violence in European history. Um, The problem is that she then attempted to just pick up that set of structures that she created in a very particular cultural context and just plop them right down somewhere else, Um, and they don't work to explain North American history. They don't apply in the same ways. Um, She would have had to do the same kind of, comes back to research, right? She would have had to do the same kind of research about North American history that she clearly did about European history to write her seven huge books and and didn't bother. Um, So I think, yes, magic can be a great way to work through really complex histories, particularly for a YA audience and for an adult audience, right? Fantasy is a great way to sort of reimagine the world and reimagine ways of thinking through um, forms of violence. Um, But I also think that you are absolutely spot on when you say that the sort of picking up on the, the moving so, so quickly into the whole sort of Salem storyline um, is a sort of a, a cheap and lazy move that I think lacks um, any of the sophistication we see in the series itself. Mm-hmm. Which is like, I don't want I mean, I'm enjoying this like whale on rolling thing that we're all doing. But, <laughs> but I, do, I do think that there's a great deal of sophistication in the original series um, that's just so, like astonishingly missing in the, the magic mm-hmm. of North America. I'm an early Americanist, and setting everything she's doing with native populations aside, a lot of innocent people died in in the Puritan witch hunts. And what about them? I mean, you know, I just I just saw the Crucible stage in New York, and it was like, yeah, okay, that's bad. This is not good. Um, other than that, one thing that that she could be doing, that maybe she will do, in a much more thoughtful and sophisticated manner the scourers from the little she's 
written about them kind of reminded me of the carpetbaggers that happened during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. Um, mostly European, well, all white certainly, but mostly like recently European settlers um, <clears throat> who were profiting off of the misery of everybody in the South. Um, there could be some nice parallels there that she could play out in the way that she did with, with European politics in, in the Potter series, but so far I'm not seeing that, that kind of... She's not putting her back into it yet. <laughs> and I'm not convinced she will, because I'm pretty sure that these stories were um, just set up for the movie. And I'm really, I really doubt that Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them are gonna, is a film that's going to have a more respectful engagement with Indigenous culture. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com There's, I don't really know what to make of this, but there's also the fact that the, um, uh, the way that she deals with the Salem Witch Trials uh, is um, uh, contradicted by her... I'm sorry, I'm so distracted by the, by the people who are, like, obviously trying not to be distracting, but at the same time, I'm like, what are you doing? Did you drop something? I'm around a, a six-month-old all day. I'm just like, what's that? Um, anyway, sorry, what I wanted to say is that, um, yeah, uh, it is confusing to me that um, the way that she deals with witches in North America or witchcraft in North America and the scours, et cetera, um, is contradicted by, uh, I can't remember which early book, it's probably either the first or second one, but um, somebody in the history of magic class or writing an exam or something is, or maybe they're writing an essay, it's about the fact that um, real witches weren't actually hurt by the fires that they were that were that were used to execute them anyway and it's it's sort of like the way that it's dealt with in the early books is is a kind of like don't worry they were fine but then we get into this and it's like no you weren't fine but which one is authoritative because this one has your name on it and so does the i'm but the history of magic didn't i don't know does it does the magic in North America imply that the only people who died in the witch burnings were not real witches? No. Is that, or does it say that the witch burnings actually successfully resulted in the deaths of witches? Yeah. 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 Okay. So we've got obviously continuity errors, which are the greatest <laughs> sin in a fantasy series. So in which please? Uh, Hannah and Marcel, uh, you talked about uh, kind of indigeneity uh, and representations of it in like Harry Potter proper, not in um, this uh, Pottermore thing. Um, and uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Harry Potter um, uh, uses, or J.K. Rowling uses kind of non-human creatures uh, as like fictional analogs for oppressed and marginalized groups. 
Um, the person who I don't know, I don't know if you or I would have noticed this had our friend Sylvie not pointed it out to us. We probably would have because we were on the lookout for things like this. But anyway, um, before we started the fifth book, our friend Sylvie pointed out to us that the representation of the centaurs was like really, really heavily based on into on tropes of indigeneity. Um, and um, that certainly became obvious to us as we were as we were reading it, and then in the film adaptations as well, um, almost more uh, crudely. There's some drums in the film. There's some troubling drums. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry. What was your what was your question? The actual handling of of representations of of um, sort of like historically oppressed subjects as non-human, non-wizard others in the books. Right, yeah, because we also talked about that with the house elves as well early on and how um, it, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really disturbing to use, non or to use non-humans as analogs for people who have undergone um, and been subjected to centuries of trauma and oppression. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, so we've talked, we talked quite a bit in the podcast about, for example, about goblins as the Jews of the Harry Potter series. Mm -hmm. um, not because we think that's funny, but because they are constantly described using deeply anti-Semitic tropes. Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked about centaurs and sort of tropes of indigeneity and, um, uh, and the house elves. And the, it, is, it is really troubling because of the ways in which the histories of oppression tend to dehumanize racialized others and use animalistic tropes as a way of discursively excluding people from the category of the human. Mm -hmm. um, and so we stumbled across a moment like that that was really hard to parse in the seventh book when um, uh, Bellatrix, who is, you know, one of our bad white <laughs> Slytherins, who are all, the Slytherins are supposed to represent the way bad white people relate to minoritized others. Um, and how Bellatrix calls Dobby a filthy little monkey. And that was a really hard moment to read because the house elves have already been charted against histories of slavery so consistently that to then have one of your characters use the same kind of racial slur that's deployed against black people, against the house elf, but the house elf is non-human, is it, it gets very messy. Right, the sort of the the kinds of tracking of the non-human against the uh, oppressed in the books gets very messy, um, and I think that the books sometimes actually do a really good if you give them a little bit of a resistant reading, do a good job of getting at the messiness from the perspective of the white protagonist, who you know, like we see Harry struggling with being told that he needs to stop, for example, being racist against house elves, but then struggling to actually embody that, right? That he knows that it's bad. He's been told by people who he respects that it's bad, but he's still, we still see like the profound internalized racism in his response to house elves like creature. Um, and so I think it, when you read the books a little resistantly, you can start to see how they are a way of working through profoundly internalized racism. Um, but only if you read them resistantly, which a lot of people don't, 
right? If you sort of read along with them, then you just see a protagonist who is celebrated and who ultimately is rewarded through being served by mm -hmm. the non-human others around him. That was very, sorry, that was a, that was a, a deep Harry Potter cut. <laughs> so why, why do you think that it's important to acknowledge centaurs as uh, more symbolic representation and not an actual representation of indigenous people? And how does this representation, how does this like misrepresentation uh, further flatten minority difference? And how do how have um, the Harry Potter books completely flattened minority difference? Uh, I'm just yeah. That's, I mean that's an observation I've had, and I just want to <laughs> <laughs> want to see how you respond to that. <laughs> because if they were actually the indigenous peoples of the Harry Potter text, that would be even more offensive than just using tropes of indigeneity. Um, we had, when we first started talking about this, we had a listener tweet at us and say that she thought that, um, that they were actually based off of the Picts or another, it was the Picts or another group, um, both of whom were, um, uh, what is the appropriate way to describe uh, people who have gone out of being? Historical, like it, like historical <laughs> historical groups who died out. I guess is what I want to say. I mean, the pigs didn't die out; they just bred in with everybody else. Okay, okay, okay. I've, I'm, I feel like I know when you come from a settler culture, it gets really confusing to try to describe. Like I, I was doing a talk in. England and started to write out the beginning of my acknowledgement of territory and I was like okay so who's the traditional wait a minute <laughs> yeah um, and and so so it was very clear that having that person say like oh I think that these are actually representations of this group of people who actually don't exist anymore blah 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 um, that that makes it all the more um, all the more inappropriate to use tropes of indigeneity to represent a mythical group of, of people because then for people who aren't doing resistant readings when they come across these groups of people they're like oh well these aren't real people these are just fantasy peoples who are no longer with us but when those tropes are tropes that are used to describe a people who are present and alive and who are resisting ongoing genocide and ongoing cultural genocide through stories that write them out of existence or who relate them to groups of people like the Picts, um, then that's a great ringtone too. <laughs> um, I'm I'm lost now where I am. The point, I guess, the short the short version of the point that I'm trying to make is that um, uh, nope, nope, I'm gone. I don't know where it is. Yeah, I would um, I would be interested in hearing you say more, Nina, about what you see as the flattening out of difference within the Harry Potter series. Um, though I think. One of the things that we spent, I don't know, we spent a little bit of time talking about this, so I don't think we've really quite gotten into it, but 
in a lot of ways, Harry Potter is a really 90s series, um, particularly insofar as it clearly represents the sort of fantasy of multiculturalism that we were quite swept up in in the 90s and this idea of a sort of um, a culture characterized by uh, tolerance and by there being sort of a space for everyone yet somehow maintaining all of the same structures that have led to the forms of oppression that make multiculturalism impossible, which is why multiculturalism is always just an impossible fantasy. Um, you know, multiculturalism of, under imperial capitalism. Um, and I think that's part of what, what you're feeling in the series is that, that way in which you sort of get to the end and you're like, wait, where was the radical uprising? Like, <laughs> did, that, or did the centers go back to the forbidden forest? Did the house elves go back to the kitchen? Are they making a living wage now? I'm pretty sure Bell Hooks told us that if they're continuing to do undervalued domestic labor, then that's not actually going to create a meaningful difference in the hierarchies that structure their lives. So, you know... Is it just business as usual, but you don't have a literal fascist government, and so you feel like that's okay? Um, you know, it's, it's the problem of, like, the return of the Trudeau government after Harper. Where we're all like, whoa, he's not a literal fascist. Everything's great. And it's like, let's raise our expectations a little. Okay, so before, before this panel started, Nina and I were talking about... Um, kind of the minority representation kind of in Harry Potter, but not actually in the text. So on one hand, you have um, like the, retro the retroactive queering of Dumbledore, where like a few years after the seventh book is published, J.K. Rowling is like, oh yeah, Dumbledore, yeah, he's gay. Um, didn't you notice? Um, and, then, uh, and then kind of on the flip side, uh, you have this kind of fan-motivated reading of Hermione as a black character. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering about, like, is, I guess, A, you know, is this kind of retroactive kind of inserting of representation, is that actually representation? Um, and uh, are the ways in which you can kind of read representations of, of yourself, um, I guess, is that representation more meaningful in the hands of the reader than kind of when the author is imposing that in? to the text. I guess just is that when, it, when a text makes room for, for you to be able to read kind of a representation into it, um, is that representation more meaningful in the hands of the reader? Um, or, you know, if J.K. Rowling is kind of reading Dumbledore as queer, is that, is that the same, does that do the same thing, I guess? Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to say I, I think no. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm thinking of a piece I read a while back. Um, it's by Hiromi Goto, and it's on her blog, and it's called The E-Racing of Race in the Hunger Games. And she talks a little bit about um, the novel The Hunger Games and how it does a kind of similar thing with um, not representing um, diversity in explicit enough a way, right? So I, I, I was always kind of bothered by the way J.K. Rowling um, retroactively thank you, retroactively had Dumbledore, um, you know, declared, declared him as a queer character. And I felt, I feel like that's probably not enough. Um, and what Goto is saying with respect to, um, what I love about her little blog post, if anybody wants to check it out, is that she actually gives a bunch of things that she thinks authors um, should do 
to represent diversity in their texts. Um, and it's really, really actually simple things like building in um, more, di more diversity with respect to the kinds of foods people eat, right? And being more explicit and direct in terms of um, coding things like, you know, coding ways that people can be different. So I think that in a way, um, it's, it's kind of really problematic to go after the fact and try to do that, right? It seems like not enough. And readers are really smart, right? They're going to get it if it's there. Um, so, so, you know, give your readers also just a little bit more credit. And sorry to kind of beat up on J.K. Rowling because there's a lot, you know, a, a lot that... Yeah, she'll lot be fine. Great, right, that's great about the books, right? No, I agree with Lucinda. The um, the outing of Dumbledore after everything was done and the end was written and it was all over was kind of ridiculous. Um, it was it was diminishing. She could have been brave, right? She could have been brave, and she did it just as um, oh, what's her Leslie Newman published um, October Morning, a song for Matthew Shepard. So he's the kid that was beaten to death um, because he was gay and this is all happening about the same time and it just made me think that yeah Rowling really could have put some of her money where her mouth is and and stood up and and done something kind of radical and wonderful all at the same time um, see and the thing about the Hunger Games is that I've <laughs> I've always thought that 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 it was just more a, a subtle. I mean, it's very the, the cues are very clear if you're reading the trilogy, who's black and who's not. Um, and in that way, she doesn't take race off the table. She she puts it there in ways that make um, inclusiveness, I think, a lot more meaningful. But that's a topic for another day. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I, that, I mean, for example, that The Hunger Games is is a book about the intersections between class and race um, and gender. That's a thing, too. Um, but, like, also what happened when the films were cast and oh, yeah. Rue was cast at by, you know... And Cinna, yeah, were cast, at, you know, as people of color and the racist internet exploded, um, which, is again, is a moment where you're like, we live in a world where you need to be a bit braver, I think. I, th I mean, I liked, I liked the way you said that, like... You can read the books and be like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dumbledore is subtextually clear. I can queer. I can see that. Like that's that's there. I believe you when you say that's a thing you put in the text. But like, just say it. Just just create. You're writing fantasy. Create a world in which you can actually name gay people as gay, and that's a thing that can happen. Um, I don't know if anybody's been following the sort of social media drive to. Um, I guess there's a Frozen sequel happening and people want Princess Elsa to be queer, to have the first queer Disney princess. Um, and a lot of people have been framing that conversation as a like, oh, won't that be a radical move? Um, and then I have seen several commentators come back and say, like, it's like the least radical thing in the world. People are gay. Like, it's not, you're not, it's not like a, like, it's just, it's just reflecting back in a tiny, tiny way, what the world's actually made of. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love, I love fandom. I've learned so much about fandom doing the Harry Potter podcast that we do um, and have learned so much about what fans are capable of and the ways in which fans are able to um, race bend and color, nope, race bend and gender bend and um, queer um, 
characters, irrespective of how they are portrayed by the by the text itself. Um, and I think that that is great because I think fans are great, but I don't think that that is sufficient in terms of representation. I think that authors do owe their readers who fall outside of the um, center of privilege a lot um, because there's not a lot of representation and so it would be nice to have it would be nice to have some and not to have to always make your own does that does that make sense yeah, yeah. like we like we queered all kinds of characters when we were reading the books we were like oh you can't stop us we queered everybody yeah. <laughs> um madam hooch obviously oh, yeah. a dope lesbian like for sure there's all this textual evidence to support it so like obviously however it would have been a lot cooler if like that had been made explicit in the text and we didn't have to do it for ourselves yeah yeah jk rowling's been taking quite a beating today um so curious to know um when do you think harry potter and J.K. Rowling, I guess, have done representation right. And, like, glory moments, like, the best moments. If there are any. I, I think that the books do a great job at white feminism. Um, I however don't think that that's good enough um, no but even then there's the fight that they have with Fleur and the yeah no never I take that back yeah. <laughs> like anybody, anybody want to come to the defense of the series that we all love oh no um, what does it do well it does, it does Hedwig? Hedwig? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, it's representations uh, of owls is really empowering. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's full of moments, right? It's full of little glimpses of possibility. Um, it's full of little spaces, um, the ways in which it legitimates different forms of grief, the way in which it legitimates different kinds of relationships. Um, and there are moments, I think maybe it, because it is a book by a white per person for white people, I think the best thing that it does is frame for white people the ways in which they fail. And I think that there's something productive in that. But I also think that there's something profoundly limited about continuously reframing conversations about race and power and oppression as something that is a conversation happening between and amongst white people, she said on a panel of white ladies. I mean, it's not a coincidence, right? This is, this is the makeup of this panel. Um, it's also, you know, I've been looking into the diversity problem in publishing, which is also made up of white ladies, um, right? And it's like white feminism still has a chokehold on political conversations in Western culture, um, you know, as though like suffrage happened and then we just didn't get any further. Um, and I think, yeah, just keep keep trying to rolling rolling does a good job on a lot of stuff i do think she does a good job of white feminism for the most part um and then i think it's incumbent on us to always in, insist on more mm -hmm. yeah. yeah all right
Great. Um, so I think we'll wrap up unless anyone in the audience has a burning question. Okay. My biggest problem with Harry Potter is the Patil. Patil? Patel? Okay. Those twins. Um, because there's only two Indian people in Harry Potter in, like, Britain, and we know for a fact <laughs> that, like, mathematically there should be more, yeah. right? And there should be more Irish people and, like, Scottish people who, like, don't set things on fire all the time. I also <laughs> found that very problematic. I don't know if you guys want to speak to the actual, like, the people that we do know um, that are not white or that are not uh, English in that, uh, in, in the books. And, and how they are represented. Um, in, in, I think, one of our early episodes, we talked about the fact that the, that the inclusion of non-white people is, like, really deeply tokenistic. Um, and that doesn't really improve. Um, there are some characters who are better, but then in their representation in the films, they go back to being tokenized, um, which is... The one that the example that's coming to mind is Kingsley Shacklebolt, who in the in the text is like a great character, but then becomes a kind of like Samuel L. Jackson stock type in the movies. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just I just finished reading. I was telling Nina and Emily before this um, that I just finished reading like the first book that I've read not for a podcast or a class or my own research in a really, really long time. Um, and I was really enjoying it, but I was trying to do this thing that I've been trying to train myself to do as a reader, which is not assume whiteness as the default of characters, even in books written by white people. And so I started to read the book and you know, have the first person protagonist and his wife, and he's just talking about them and not describing them bodily at all. And I was like, cool, what are some of the ways I can imagine these characters and what they look like and who they are and and just sort of you know undo that that normalizing of the white gaze in my own reading practice but the second the protagonist encountered another character who was a person of color he like made it really clear and proceeded to do that with every character who was encountered in the rest of the book and so it made it impossible for me and that's sort of what happens when in a you know in a series like um like Harry Potter, where there's, you could have the freedom to just be like, I will assume that the population of Hogwarts looks much like the population of the UK and therefore is diverse and has, you know, particular larger, larger communities that are larger communities in the UK because its history of, because of its history of imperialism and, um, you know, not assume that the only Irish character is the one who's really mad about football and trying to make rum like in the first time you see him um but the book makes that impossible by so pointedly telling us when somebody is a person of color or from any culture that isn't a sort of you know generic white british culture um so there's this way that it really curtails your imagination um when when that sort of tokenism happens in a series Okay, yeah, this is about um, a life situation that I'm in right now. I got a job at EPL. I'm really excited about it. I'm my catchment, so the area that I visit to read stories to is the furthest west you can get. So my catchment includes Enoch, and I'm doing a presentation at Enoch for grade eights, okay? And it's supposed to be about um, 
a hundred great books, which I'm not going to go through a hundred great books. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to be talking about why I lit and the first thing that I thought was, okay, I should definitely talk about a whole bunch of YA from Indigenous authors. I'm wondering though, um, if that is pandering. I don't even, this is the first time I've used the word pandering in a sentence, so I don't even know really what it means. But I mean, I mean, like, is this, are they going to be like, wow, this is a white girl who's, um, I don't know, trying to show us or talk about good books in sort of a deprecating way, right? Like a rude way, like, oh man. Yeah, so that's what I would like some comments on. And also any, yeah, any ideas for this presentation? I used to be a high school librarian yeah. and I actually built for a First Nation school in Northern Saskatchewan, their library from the ground up. So the books that you were, you wrote down, the Seal and Slapen books, you yeah. should have them in your collection somewhere. Yeah. So look at them. Um, I can put you in contact with a postdoc at the University of Lethbridge who's actually working with Blackfoot kids, um, reading uh, with them, doing a reader response study with them, using YA fiction written by First Nations authors. Um, this is grade eight. I would say have 50 books by First Nations authors about whatever, yeah. and then 50 books by settler authors that are not about First Nations so that they've got a good, wide, diverse. But it's not pandering when you make sure that your audience sees their experiences reflected in the literature you bring them. So, um, and just start with Sherman Alexi and the Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian and you'll be gold. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of really great stuff you can do. Um, there's Drew Hayden Taylor um, who has um, um, the Night Wanderer. Sorry, I seem to have a problem it's with okay. this. It's okay, you're just pointing away from you. And yeah, it might be a, su a sort of sub you're a, hand talker. a subconscious thing, too. It's like, okay. I'm wondering. <laughs> um, but yeah, Drew Hayden Taylor's um, The Night Wanderer. Um, Aaron Paquette's Light Finder um, are really good. Um, you could um, look at some um, stuff, even by possibly Richard Van Camp. I don't know, he's done some. Um, I don't know if it's as much young adult fiction as for even younger children. But I think too, um, you know, just be really attentive to your room. And I, I recognize that where you're heading, you can feel a little bit uncomfortable. And sometimes it's just okay to own that discomfort a little bit, you know, and um, be a little bit honest about it. Um, it's okay, um, right? You don't have to declare yourself as an expert in Indigenous people's cultures, right? But you do know a lot about books and you can share a lot of books and titles with people and, and present it from that sort of an angle, like I, you know, because you have that knowledge. Uh, so if you consider us all your students, if you would, um, what would you say is like a responsible way of reading this literature that we love to read? Um, like I know some, there's a debate of whether like you can enjoy something and still think critically about it or if you just have to kind of like ignore it and and just go with the ride. So I was wondering what you... <laughs> so please elaborate then, I guess. And I'll try to hold this still. Yeah, I got it, you're um, good. You can hold your hands. Okay, um, I don't think that it's about ignoring texts, um, but it's about experiencing as many different kinds of texts as you can. 
And I know that something that's happened to me a lot, um, you know, being asked to teach a lot of Indigenous literature kind of, um, you know, by default in many ways, because as a sessional, that's what I was assigned for a long time. And now it's something I really love to do. And my own tastes have really evolved with that. I, I love reading those books now. Um, but, but I think going back to what you say, Hannah, as well, about always just reading in a really mindful way so that the settler doesn't, or the white person, and settler and white European person are kind of interchangeable in my view, but this idea that we should put that, we, can we find ways of reading so that that identity isn't always at the center, right? Um, and one of the things that Aaron always says about Lightfinder, and I, I will hope he doesn't mind me speaking for him a little bit, but he says when he wrote the book, it was really important for him to just let it be about Indigenous people um, without kind of having to declare that identity, right? And so um, to just kind of think through it in those terms, um, how can how can that that identity of the settler or the white person not be front and center? And it's actually a really hard thing to do, right? My students tell me that I ruin everything for them. <laughs> because they have to think critically about everything. Um, if you're not doing that, then you're not doing your job as an, as an engaged reader. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat Marcel to our, uh, our, our punchline, our, our punch <laughs> which is, uh, and we say it over and over again, if thinking critically about something ruins it, then that thing wasn't good to begin with. Like, that's it. If you have to turn your brain off to enjoy something, then it wasn't good. And there's like, there's so much culture in the world. And there's a ton of it that you really don't have to stop thinking in order to enjoy it. So just go read that stuff. And I, do, I think Harry Potter, I think our experience has been, you don't have to turn your brain off to enjoy Harry Potter. But our, our experience has also been, you can think critically about things and still have fun with them. You can like them at the same time. Um, but yeah, like if you are finding that you have to turn off a part of your brain because say, you know, in my, in my experience, I will sometimes slip into, like I really like comic books and so I go see a lot of comic book movies and a thing will happen where I've seen too many comic book movies in a row and then I forget that like women also have vocal cords <laughs> and or I'll get like really alarmed when I see like an image on a screen that has more than a single white lady in it. And then I'm like, oh, I, I've been like my, cultural consumption has been bad and I need to stop watching Marvel movies for a while <laughs> and go watch movies made by real people um, who aren't, you know, Zack Snyder. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't make Marvel movies, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I stand by that punchline. Yeah, this is, and this is not about books, but um, our friend Rebecca started this project where um, she had just seen too many movies that hinged or centered or depended on violence against women and was and had had enough and so she started this Netflix project where um, she in her Netflix account she only watches movies that have no men on the cover wait I'm, Am I getting this right? It's either that they have no men on the cover or that they have at least two women but still no men on the on the promo picture, right? So in that way, what she's done is she has completely changed her default consumption. Um, so she only um, so she's only selecting movies out of that list. And what'll often happen is if she looks at something, so let's say 
um, so she'll like look at the description for something that looks appealing and if it sounds good she'll do a little bit more research into it to ensure that it's something she wants to watch because there are still lots of movies and lots of television programs that are centered on women but that still do depend on violence against women and she's like I've had enough I don't want to watch that anymore so she won't watch say the Bletchley Circle which I love because she's had enough violence against women and I think that that is the most incredible project and I really really respect her doing it um, she's now added to that where she's so she's only watching things that pass both the Bechdel test and the Duverney test and so the Duverney test is the same as the Bechdel test except with people of color um, and yeah her her line about that is it sounds really hard to only read things that or only watch things that pass the Bechdel and the Duvernay test. Um, she was like, and yet my life passes both of those tests every day. <laughs> so why should that be so hard? So you can do it. <laughs> All right. Um, if there are no more questions, I think that's a good point to end on. Yeah. Um, can right? we get a round of applause for our Yay! wonderful panelists? Thank you so much for all of your time. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. This is kind of the first event of its kind that Potter Watch has done. So if you all liked it, maybe we'll try and do another one eventually. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. I'm going to pass this back to you. <laughs>